Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. We've been in a series entitled uh, The Long Way Home, uh, following the Israelites as they leave Egypt as slaves and God is developing them into warriors from tribes into a nation, from people who don't understand who he is to uh, a journey of revealing himself uh, to them. And there could have been a quick road from Egypt to uh, Canaan, the promised land, Um, But instead, for a number of reasons, they end up taking the long way to get home. And there's a process of education that goes into that. We reach today one of those pivotal, really significant points. And in order to illustrate that or or, uh, bring this to a point of attention here, I defer uh, to the classics. Lord, I shall give these laws unto thy people. Hear me. Oh, hear me. The Lord, the Lord Jehovah, has given unto you these 15, 10, 10 commandments for all to obey. There's nothing better than Mel Brooks on a Sunday morning. Um, They come to Sinai, this mountain, and we showed a little bit of that last week. And as they're coming to that place, God meets them. He's revealed himself as healer. He's revealed himself as um, uh, one that walks throughout time uh, in so many different ways. But now there's this power that settles on the mountain. And at first the people want to press forward. Then as God shows up, they run back. And they say, no, Moses, you go and talk. And so Moses has the conversation, and he relates to them what God's law is for them, what his guidelines are going to be for them. Um, And then he enters into a period of time on the mountain, along with Joshua accompanying him, to actually begin to put those things. You've heard it said, well, it's not written in stone. Like, it's, it's nowhere. In this case, it was written in stone. It was something that was to be decisive. It was something that was supposed to be established for all time. And so these Ten Commandments, there weren't 15, there were 10, um, also refers to the Decalogue or the Ten Words. And they're organized in a fashion that the first four of those commandments have to do with our relationship with God. The other, other six have to do with our relationship with one another. And so as much as you can see these as rules or commandments or whatever else, um, they're really just ten words of relationship. It's really about relationship. Now, Jesus alludes to this directly even uh, when he's asked in Matthew chapter 22, um, an expert in the religious law, a lawyer, tried to trap him with this question, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of, the, of Moses, of the, of the top ten, which is the top one. 
And he says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. He summarizes that the first four sections there is about loving God with all your heart and mind. And there's ways that you can do that. You will have no other gods before me. It's exclusionary. You're not to add on. It's exclusionary, our relationship, God says. You're not to make yourself an idol, something else that you can worship or, or visualize with God. He's spirit, and therefore you can't limit him to a structure of any type. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. It's to be, it's to be special. You're not to be casual about uh, the name of God. You remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It's to be a day set aside. That's been hard to do in COVID, guys. It's all blended in as one big event. But we're still supposed to take the day. And I know those of you on live stream sometimes, you, you mark other times maybe when you're trying to, you'll be hearing this later in the week. And, and I understand all the situations. I don't think it's a legalistic thing. But there is something about setting aside Sunday. There's something about setting aside the time to gather and to reflect those were the first four. That was a relationship between God and how we're to engage him. The next six had to do with how we engage one another. Honor your father and mother. It's the first one out of the bat. Respect the authority in your household that birthed you and born you. You don't have to necessarily obey every aspect of what that is depending on your age and circumstances, but there's to be an honoring of respect. You're not supposed to murder. That's often said as not kill, but the actual language says you're not to murder. What's the distinction? Innocent life. You're not to take an innocent life. Uh, I don't think there's any more innocent life than a baby that's not been born yet. That is not to be done. And there could be other circumstances, whether it be a, in conflict of war or in defense or other circumstances where someone may be killed, but we're not to murder. We're not to take innocent life. You should not commit adultery. We keep the marriage bed sacred in relationships of, of marriage. You are not to steal, taking things that don't belong to you. We're not supposed to give false testimony um, against uh, those that are around us. Now, one person was writing on this and came across three different ways that they broke this down as slander, tail-bearing, and inappropriate silence. <clears throat> slander is a lie invented and spread with intent to do harm. This is the worst form of injury a person can do to another. He wrote, compared to one who does this, a gangster is a gentleman and a murderer is kind because he ends life in a moment with a stroke and maybe a little bit of pain. But the man guilty of slander or woman guilty of slander ruins a reputation which may never be regained and causes lifelong suffering. Tailbearing. It's repeating a, a report about a person without careful investigation without careful investigation, and we report or pass that on or click and drag or do whatever the case may be or retweet. And people suffer from that. To repeat a story which brings discredit and dishonor to another person without making sure of the facts is breaking, in fact, this commandment. Next time you're on your uh, Facebook site or on any other site where you're posting and you're just passing on. I'm, I'm just retweeting. I'm just, I'm just passing it on. If you have not investigated the facts of those issues, you are in threat of breaking this commandment. You say, well, we didn't know if it was true or not. And there was no intention to malign. It's no justification. 
Another one is inappropriate silence can also be a problem. When someone utters a falsity about another and a third person is present who knows that statement to be untrue but for reasons of fear or being disliked remains quiet, that third person is in fact guilty of also breaking this commandment. Now, I'm just touching on two of those real quickly. The whole ten uh, were to be available to us and to be guiding us and directing us in what we do. It was a pivotal moment in, in Israel's history. In fact, it was in fact a pivotal moment in the world. Most laws up to that time were directly linked to the king or to the ruler. And in fact, the king and the ruler could override those laws. He was viewed as above the law. There was a gradual evolution in thought in mankind that, that nobody was to be above the law. And really the first um, expression of this is found in these Ten Commandments. Even though it's referred to as Moses' law, he didn't benefit from them, nor did he write them. We're told that God wrote them. There was something that was supposed to stand outside of any king or any ruler or, or any guideline of any kind that in fact it was no longer to the whim of the one who had the most power, but it was rooted in something deeper. It was a new revelation, but for the most part, it was simply and, and, and clearly something that, that had been written on the hearts of men from the beginning of time. It's wrong to steal or murder or covet, not primarily because these are things that are forget, forbidden by the Ten Commandments. They're forbidden by the Ten Commandments because they were previously forbidden by conscience. And they're forbidden by conscience because they're forbidden by the very nature of things. And they're forbidden by the very nature of things because they're part of the nature of things that is God. In other words, God exists in moral clarity. He creates a reality that reflects that. That is in turn reflected in our own thinking, in our own conscience, if you will. And now this is now visualized and put into practice with the Ten Commandments. It's something that stands beyond just the dictate of a king or a ruler or an authority, but something rooted more deeply in the hearts of men themselves that God's placed there. In the book, The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis explains about this universal morality that there is among men. He gives different examples about how these things are to operate and to be. And he says this, think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle. Or where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might just as well, he says, try to imagine a country where two and two made five, which increasingly is the mathematics of our current culture, but that aside... Men have differed, he said, as regards what people you ought to be unselfish to, whether it was your own family or your fellow countrymen or everyone, but they've always agreed that you ought not to put yourself first. Selfishness has never been admired. Men have differed as to whether you should have one wife or four, but they've always agreed that you must not simply have any woman you like. In all cultures, murder is wrong. Kindness is good. There are certain things that have run through that whole thing that is, is, is imprinted on the conscience of man, that is rooted in the nature of who God is. And in this moment of time, God reveals that uh, in these Ten Commandments, in these guidelines that he gives to people and directs them to. And so this is something special and unique in history that's no longer rooted in the whims of a man and can be changed or twisted by that. This is a law that stands throughout time. 
Now, there were civil laws that were given just to Israel over time that only were meant for them as a people. There were dietary laws that had to do with just how they could uh, protect themselves from disease and other issues. All those things could come and go. But the moral law never goes. You will be lied to and have been lied to, being told that, well, today these things don't relate. We now know more. We understand more. There is a moral code that never changes because it's rooted in the heart and nature of God himself. And we violate that at our threat. So this is the circumstance. This is what has been shared with the people, but now Moses is on the mountain, and, and God's writing these things down on the tablets, but it's taking a while. For whatever reason, they're hanging out, and they're, they're not seeming to move down the line. And so we find ourselves now in Exodus chapter 32 as we continue the narrative. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, his brother. Come on, they, uh, come on, they said. Let us make some gods who can lead us, who don't know what, we don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. In other words, we've been waiting a long time. It's been 40 days. And who knows what's happened to Moses? And, and we want to have uh, something now to be tangible to hold on to, and, and, and we want to lean into something here. Now, we have so far been, what, seven months, eight months? I don't know if you've noticed, but we've been in COVID, okay? And we're restricted. And there's a tendency for us to be impatient with that, to get caught up with our anger, our frustrations, or our need to control our lives increasingly. And there is a danger or a threat that can come with that if we're not cautious. In these individuals' case, it goes to the point of actually making an idol. And here's how it goes, and it's kind of interesting. Let's go to the fourth verse. Aaron takes the gold. He asks them all, well, pull all the earrings you got off and all that jewelry, and, and, and let's, let's get some action going here. And so he takes the gold, melts it down, and then he, track this, molds it into the shape of a calf. Actually, it would have been like a three-year-old bull but a calf, and when the people saw it, they exclaimed this, notice the line, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So they formed this, this golden calf, and I've told you there's different phrases as we've walked through this, so that you could be biblically literate, okay? Bricks without straw, and pillars of cloud by day, and, and pillars of uh, fire by night, different phrases. This one here of a golden calf is one that, that used to be deeply embedded in the lexicon of this country, but we've forgotten so much. These are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now here's an interesting thing. As they raise up this golden calf, which is kind of taking them back to Egypt, because they would have worshipped things like that. Specifically, there was a type of bull worship that they would have been part of. And so as they go back to that, and they're, they're, they're taking what they're familiar with, they're, they're forgetting very quickly the experiences that they had with God. Um, this becomes their moment. Let me take you somewhere else for a second. 1 Kings chapter 12. As they get into Israel eventually and establish themselves in the land of Canaan, they end up with Saul as a king, then David, then Solomon, and then Solomon's son is a guy named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is a little obnoxious in what he does. And so the people say, we're not going to follow you because you're, pretty, uh, you're not in touch politically with what's going on and we don't, we don't want to follow you, your kind of person. So ten tribes split off up north and two tribes stay with the house of David. Jeroboam is the one who ends up with these other ten tribes. 
And he thinks to himself in 1 Kings chapter 12, unless I am careful, the kingdom will return to the dynasty of David. They'll reunite. And then these people will go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord. They'll again give their allegiance to King Rehoboam of Judah. They'll kill me and make me their king instead. Because Jerusalem was in the realm of where the two tribes resided, where, where Rehoboam was at. So in other words, as they're going there to worship God, they're going to see that, okay, this is where that lands at. They're going, to, they're going to fall back into being united as a kingdom. So on the advice of his counselors, the king made two gold what? Calves. He made two gold calves. And he said to people, it's too much trouble for you to worship in Jerusalem. It's a long drive. Then you, once you get there, it's way up high in the mountains, and, and you have to climb up to it. It's too much hassle. Look, Israel. What does he say? These are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's a repeat. Only now it's for political reasons. He placed these calf idols in Bethel and Dan, either end of his kingdom, but this became a great sin for the people who worshipped the idols, worshipping as far north as Dan to worship the one there. So for political reasons, he creates these calves. He sets up this idol worship. He does this so they won't go to Jerusalem and be drawn back into the rest of the other kingdom. Two things that I want to bring to you here. There's something called syncretism. Syncretism is when we mix anything else with the worship of God. Any other characteristics that are not of God and identify it with God. This is why God says at the beginning, you'll have no other gods before me. There's not to be anyone else that's to come before me, is a statement he makes. Now, it's interesting because there's a phrase in Exodus chapter 32, if we go back to it, that Aaron, we saw how excited the people were, he built an altar in front of the calf, and he announced tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord, or to Yahweh. It's all capped, so Yahweh. People get up early, and they basically have this wild, drunken orgy in their worship of the calves. But notice he's saying it's going to be a festival to Yahweh. We have a golden calf, but we're also worshiping Yahweh still. We're adding on to him. It's, 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 we don't get this, that it's exclusionary. It's just like Egypt or anywhere else. We have multiple gods. Well, we have Yahweh, but we also have these calves, and we have all these things kind of blending together. And it's called syncretism when we add something to that. They didn't get it. It was to be exclusionary. Now, in, in the case of Jeroboam, it was also a convenience issue. And I want to be really careful with this. Again, for those of you that are live streaming, continuing to do that, for those of you that are doing that in wisdom's sake, for whatever reason, then, then, then don't feel offended by this next st statement. But for those of you who are operating in fear, or for those of you who are just finding it more convenient than to gather, then I want to challenge you this morning on the convenience of that. We fall into patterns so easy, and there's patterns that if you're not careful, you're not going to come back to ever. And eventually that ends up having us being separated from the worship of God and separated from how to gather with God. So I, I, I make that point. But the syncretism can go much deeper. I made a statement last week that I want to repeat. And in the context of syncretism and sacrifices to calves, that the blood of a donkey or an element, elephant cannot be mixed with the blood of the lamb. 
The kingdom of God has always had political zealots and tax collectors all stumbling together to follow God. You're not more righteous if you're a Democrat or more righteous if you're a Republican. Whatever your position, and if you are adding to the worship of God to align any political agenda or nationalistic agenda alongside that, then you are being syncretistic and raising up a golden calf in the process. We are to worship God first and foremost. No one is to be added to that. When I first became lead pastor of this church, roughly back in the 1900s, we used to have an American flag and and a Christian flag on the platform. We removed those fairly quickly, not because we were offended by the flag or by America or certainly not by Christianity at all, but there was an event that happened when my father was pastor that I could never forget. My father had bled for this country. He had fought in the Battle of Okinawa. He was extremely patriotic as a second-generation, really first-generation American. And so we'd had a Fourth of July gathering that was full of the songs of triumph of of our country as well as worship of God, but there was such a close intertwining of that. Afterwards, there was a man who had been in our congregation for a number of years. His name was Wilhelm Singer, Willie Singer. He used to sit right over there with his wife, Hilda. Hilda was on oxygen most of the time. And I remember him coming up to my father after one of those gatherings and distraught, still trusting of the congregation, but distraught because he says, this is the way in his broken English, this is the way I saw it start. This is the way I saw it begin. He had a tattoo he had held on their wrists, numbers. There were German Jews who had seen time in the concentration camps, had seen their families decimated and killed, and only they had come out of that situation. And he saw in such a close alignment of, of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man to be something that for him was a repeat of time. Whether that was legitimate or not, I'm not saying to that issue. I'm certainly not calling us a fascist country or anything of that nature. What I am saying is that there is never to be anything of any kind of nationalism, political, personal, that overrides our loyalty and our commitment to God. And if anyone sees something more than that, then God has lowered to eventually be dismissed or, or marginalized. These calves were made because people weren't willing to be patient, because they couldn't understand the ways of God, and they wanted to reach back for the past. They wanted to reach for those things that had always united them. In verses 7 and 8, the Lord tells Moses, quick, go down the mountain. People are messing things up. It's really a problem. I'm summarizing this section here. You need to get down there and address this. And so Moses comes tripping on down the mountain. And in verses 19 and 20, when they came near the camp where everyone's in drunken orgy and they're just just going all over the place and these calves are in the middle being worshipped and the dancing, he says he burned with anger and he threw the stone tablets to the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain. Let's stop there for just a second. Keep the scripture up. We'll stop there for a second. So Moses has an anger problem. There's a subset of this communication today. He had an anger issue. Uh, Three times he really has anger 
that causes problems. One, the first time he, he kills an Egyptian who's beating up on a, on a Jewish guy. Um, the second time is this one right here, strike number two. He's so distraught over what he's seeing that these tablets with the word of God on it, he smashes down. Now, there are those that have said that in his breaking of the, of the, of the tablets, he was actually physically illustrating to everyone how they had broken the law of God. And that may be the case, but it was still done in anger. Righteous or not, it has a result of these original tablets being broken. The third strike comes later in a few weeks' time we'll talk about, but that final strike actually stops him from being able to go into the land of promise. So anger is something that we have to watch and be careful of. But either way, he illustrates the breaking of that. The people have broken God's law. There's horrible things that come out of this. And then watch what he does here. He took the calf they had made and he burned it. And then he ground it to powder and threw it into the water and forced the people to drink it. Now this is weird. Okay? I mean, I've heard of having, you know, my wife tells me she's into all the dessert stuff. You know how they'll have a little bit of gold on a, on a fancy dessert, and it's edible. And I'm like, whatever, okay? So, you know, what is he doing here? Well, think about it. If you break down the, the gold from that thing, then people could have parts of it still. Oh, this was part of the original golden calf. Or maybe we'll reshape it into something else. But if you grind this to powder, you put it in water, and you have people drink it, that gold ain't coming back. Not in any usable form that you really want to engage. It was a way of completely decaffeinating them. Okay, just laying that out there. Hence the title of our message today, Decaffeinating Your Life. Because what happens when you have a golden calf, and we all have them, whether we syncretized our political beliefs to dilute the worship of God, or whether there's other things that have crept in, at its core it's this. When you have a golden calf and you polish it really well, eventually you begin to see your own reflection in it. And after looking at it and worshiping it long enough, that's all you see is your own reflection. The golden calves in our lives are those things that have been raised up in such a way as to completely reflect or simply reflect what we want. A God that serves our purposes. A God that directs and says what we want to have done and validates our decisions sexually, validates our decisions financially, politically, whatever. It's a reflection of what it is compared to the awesome alienness of God who challenges and transforms us. Great scene comes here. Chapter 32, verses 23 through 24, um, Moses is challenging Aaron, like, what would you do? I leave for 40 days and everything goes nuts. Don't get so upset, my Lord. Aaron replied, that's a weird relationship. They're brothers. When was the last time you ever said to your brother, my Lord? Okay, but anyways, he does. You yourself know how evil these people are. That's a classic statement of leadership. Wasn't my fault. People are just, what can you say? They're idiots. Okay said to me, make us gods who will lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. That's true. That's what they said. So I told them, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. That's true. That's what he did. 
And when they brought it to me, and that's true, they brought it to him, I simply threw it into the fire and out came this calf. I don't think that's how it worked. In other words, he's saying, it was a miracle. Can't believe it. It's a classic in the statement of deferring of responsibility. Scripture makes clear he actually shaped it with his hands. He actually worked it into a polish until people could see themselves in it. The law of God, rooted in the very nature of who God is, has three purposes. One, it's to be a guide rail. It keeps us on a moral path. It's a guide rail for us to let us know if we're wandering too far off one way or the other. It's a mirror that shows us when we failed and shows us our need for a Savior. That mirror is, is absolutely critical. But we don't want to look at that and truly see ourselves how we are in God's eyes. We'd rather look at the calves we've made and see the distorted figure of what we want to see. It's also a guide. It shows us the heart and the desire of God for his people. But the critical part of all of that was that there's to be no other gods before me. It literally means before um, or to my face. Don't ever bring another god before my face, God says. Don't, don't do that. I want relationship with you. Don't put anything between you and me. No other god. It's you and it's me. There'll be no other gods before me. There's to be exclusion, not syncretism, a blending of things until you water it down, you end up with something. No self-reflection of a golden calf. It's to be you and me. And this means that God demands to be more than just added to our lives. It's not an addition to become a follower of Christ. We don't just add Jesus to the life we already have. We have to give him our entire life, and that means then we review How is our life aligned to that? How is the way I'm acting out sexually aligned with that? How does the way I'm acting out financially aligned with that? How does the way I'm working out politically, relationally, how do I care about people? If the commandment and the the rules of relationship are truly love God with all your heart and mind first, first things first, and then the second thing is how we love one another, then whether you're Republican or Democrat shouldn't matter in how I love you. I can still argue, discuss those things and do that in a hopefully a loving fashion but not in a way that denigrates you and demonizes you. And no matter how much I love you or care for you, I can't let your view of me or your views override my first responsibility which is to love God and his views have to dominate in my life. First things first, second things second. Caffeination. I'm a big coffee person and I prefer mine fully caffeinated, but in this case, we should be decaffeinated. Caffeination, in this case, of a worship of the golden calves is syncretism. It's blending things until God becomes diluted. It's faithless. It's impatient. It's addition versus exclusive worship to God. It's addition to worshiping God. It's regressive. I want to go back. It seeks the past and and things that held me in slavery from before. It's a build a bare faith. I draw from different sources to create the God that I want, ultimately just a reflection of my own needs and my own desires. 
Now you contrast that with this next thing I want to show you and then one more point before we close today. This next thing I want to show you is running up to the 33rd chapter and the 13th verse. God is saying at one point in time, look, at you guys are so messed up that I'm going to let you go ahead without me. Because if I go with you, there's no chance you're living. I'm going to kill you guys because you guys are so stupid. I'm paraphrasing. You're so prone to do things that are, are, are going to strike my sense of justice. The people have a moment of repentance, and they say, no, we don't want to go without you. Moses, please with God, please don't. Don't let us go on without you. Um, and then he goes further. He says this in verse 13. If it's true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways so that I might understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. Let me know your ways. We know the ways of the Kardashians. We know the ways of all our cultural icons. We know who's premiering on The Bachelorette this week. We know all the cultural things of what's in detail. We know how we've been shaped and trained by our education or by other things. We know what our own heart cries for. But do we know the ways of God? Sinai was the beginning of the unfolding of that for people to see that there was a God whose nature they could partake of, they could understand, that could change how they think, how they interact, not just with God, but with others as well too. Do you know the ways of God? Or do you find yourself embracing and holding tightly the calves that you've created in your life? Now, I want to draw one final thing before we conclude today. Because hidden away in the ten chapters or so after Sinai where he's laying out the law to him, them and then also saying um, what, what, how, what the penalties would be and, and how this should act out in practicality. Buried in the middle of this is, is a phrase that's found in Exodus chapter 21 verses 5 and 6 and it talks about a bond slave. Now in, in Judaism this is the type of slavery they had. It, it was one that could end after six to seven years of time. And it was usually for economic reasons. Someone had failed in a business and they, they couldn't pay up um, or, or something else had happened. And so now I am now your slave. I'm a bond slave, but it's for a period of time of my bond is six years and after the seventh year you have to set me free. And that would be it. Not the best economic system, but, but it was what they had without having a Federal Reserve, okay? But this passage is, is totally different. In this it says, But the slave may declare, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I don't want to go free. If he does this, his master must present him before God. Then his master must take him to the door or doorpost and publicly pierce his ear with an awl. After that, the slave will serve his master for life. And so you had someone who was a bond slave and the moment most of them were, 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 were declared free at that sixth or that seventh year, they're, they're gone. But you had some that had formed such a relationship. They had a master who was so gracious, so loving, that they recognized it was better to be in his household than to depart. They'd formed something that no longer was of the law. It was now purely relational in nature. And as a result of that, that person could then declare that and the master would take him to the doorposts of the house. And at the doorposts of the house they would place their ear and they would pierce 
the ear with an awl. So there is now a hole in the ear. They could now wear pierced earrings. It was a thing that was very fashionable in the day. Their blood was upon that doorpost. Why the doorpost? Well, it's the most handy piece of wood. No, no. There was another time when blood was shed on a doorpost, and that was when the children of Israel come out of Egypt, and the blood of a lamb was spread over the doorpost because the doorposts were a place of witness. It was a place that every time I go through that place, I'm remembering what happened and the freedom and grace that was given to me. Every doorpost I go through, every doorway I go through, I remember that. To this day, the Jewish people will put mezuzahs, little things upon the doorposts of the house and of any entry point to have God's blessing upon a place. And so in this moment of time, it wasn't just a matter of a doorpost and an ear being put there and an all pounding through that ear. That place was now a place of witness and every single time that former slave, now a part of the family, walked through it, they remembered that moment of time. It also pointed to something else, that blood that was now on the doorpost that blood of the ear that was now in that doorpost. Jesus is referenced in Philippians as being a bondservant. He took the role of a bondservant. And his act of love was not just a doorpost, it was another wooden frame for which he was pierced and his blood was shed upon that. As he submitted himself to the Father for the greater good of all of mankind. You can worship a golden calf in the shallowness of your own Reflection. And you'll find a shallow, dead end to that. You can get wrapped up in the politics of the season and all the viciousness and ugliness. You can click and retweet without another thought, shredding someone or destroying something. Or you can let that calf in your life, whatever it is, however it's reflected, you can grind that down, you can put it into powder, you can drink it and let it dissolve so it's never ever a to hurt your life again, and you can instead embrace and turn around to face the mountain of Sinai, a God who is granted terrifying in his holiness, but overwhelming in his love. That in the middle of all this law, in the middle of all those things, the recognition that there could be somebody who by law first served, but now recognize the significance of being part of a family and is willing to have their ear marked and that place of witness so every time they walked past, they remembered that. And I'm told that once an ear is pierced, then unless something's placed in it or is regularly marked again, it closes up. For many of us who started in the faith, maybe drawn by law, but then drawn into family, our ears were marked, but over the years, they've closed up. And we're no longer hearing the things of God. We've turned our back on His holiness as a nation. We looked at donkeys and elephants for salvation. We forget the Lamb. We forsake the assembling of ourselves out of fear or out of convenience. We polish our golden calves and think we found salvation. Underneath it all, the mountain still thunders. There's still a rumbling in the subterranean parts of our heart that, that draws us back to that place of worship. And today, here, now, 
that's where we find ourselves. Looking once again at the blood upon the doorposts. Fingering our ears. Once again. Realizing these golden calves are never going to meet the desires of our heart. And so, God, this morning, we as a congregation, whether we are gathered in this place or scattered, we draw ourselves again in submission and worship to you. You, Yahweh, the God who needs no one but desires us. That you would seek us out. That you send your son to sacrifice himself. All the different ways, Lord. And we forget so quickly. So, Lord, in this place, in this time, let your Holy Spirit draw hearts and minds. Let it penetrate to a living room or a bedroom right now, but particularly right now, the bedroom of our own hearts. Let us hear again, even if it's just in the background, the thundering of Sinai and the stirring of the earth beneath our feet that draws us to look upward and to see your face, the face of God. If you'd stand with me. Moses intercedes. And because of his intercession, God holds back his total judgment and continues to walk with the children of Israel on this long journey home. There's a cost that's paid. Over 3,000 people die in the process, and everyone's forced to make a choice. You either stand with God or against him. And in that rallying cry, the entire nation repents and draws back. And Moses has that moment of continuing to pursue God and saying, teach me your ways. Let us pray for our nation. Let's pray for the church as it continues in this time. But I want to challenge you to pursue the ways of God, to not let anything dilute that or distract from that. To take whatever shiny things you have that could take away and put that down. And don't get caught with the convenience of worship that doesn't challenge anything of you. Father, we come before you this morning as your church. And Lord, we do lift up this nation. There are 400 million calves, golden calves, running around crazily. Lord, we're withdrawing ours from the herd and we're grinding it down. We'll swallow and let it pass out into oblivion. And we turn our eyes back on you, but we lift up this nation, Lord. We pray, God, despite everything that she's been guilty of, it's still our home. And so, Lord, we pray for it. If somehow in your grace you could still grant us peace and prosperity, that you could let a revival and a transformation in our nation take place. And, Lord, before we point our fingers at everyone else, let it begin with us. Let it begin with a church that is actively seeking the ways of God and is willing to sit at the foot of Mount Sinai for however long it takes. Guide us in these things, we pray, Lord, as we commit ourselves to them as your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.